Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? It's hot in Washington, D.C., and so am I. It's hot, but going to the movies is a great thing to do when you're hot because it's air-conditioned, and that's why I'm really happy to be talking about movies with friends. This is, a, this is a very staggered intro here. We're not as smooth as usual. I feel like the heat's getting to our brains. All right, first up in controversies and non-troversies. For the first time since 1960, back when SAG was led by Ronald Reagan, the writers and the actors are striking at the same time in a fiery speech last week. Uh, Screen Actor Guild President Fran Drescher said that the studios and their leaders have gotten greedy, that the two sides are oceans apart, and that the raises offered by the AMPTP don't come close to matching inflation. Studios say that actors are making unreasonable demands in the face of an industry that is still hemorrhaging cash thanks to the move to streaming. So what are the sticking points here, right? Okay, so one imagines that a lot of the finer points, the finer sticking points are pretty easy to hammer out, right? SAG is demanding an 11% raise in the first year of the deal, then 4% in each of the next two years. The studios offered 5%, then 4%, then 3.5%. Again, these are numbers. Uh, They don't strike me as terribly insurmountable. And there are disputes over, you know, how much should be contributed to healthcare, pensions, et cetera. Again, we're talking about degrees here. These are standard things to get hammered out in negotiations. But there are wider conceptual gulfs in other realms. Sometimes it seems that the studios and actors aren't even sure what they're disagreeing about. For instance, SAG has said that the studios are attempting to pay extras, aka background actors, for a single day of work, scan their image on that day, then use that image in perpetuity forever. They'll have a whole clone army of background workers in their files that they can put into stadiums and and have them interacting with each other. The studios insist that these scans are only intended for one use on a single project, right? You scan one day, you use them in that project, whatever. The studios also insist that they only want to use digital compositing of stars in movies with the permission of the actors themselves, right? SAG says the language is written in such a way that you can drive, quote, a Mack truck through it, end quote. The biggest gap, though, seems to be this. SAG is asking for 2% of revenue from the streaming services, which would then be divided amongst the programs on the streaming services by popularity as measured by the firm Parrot Analytics. SAG offered a proxy like Parrot since they know that the services are loath to give up their actual data. The streaming services argue this is a non-starter because it's too difficult to determine what constitutes a success, which strikes me as totally insane. Like, just totally insane. If the streamers themselves can't say what constitutes a success, how are they making decisions to greenlight or cancel shows? This is a genuinely enormous cost beyond the conceptual part of it, right? Uh, Given the way that these negotiations tend to run. If SAG gets 2% of all streaming revenue, that means that the studios are going to actually have to give up probably 6% of revenue, at least in a couple years, right? When the Directors Guild comes up again, or when they finally settle with the WGA. Um, Who knows what IATSE would ask for when they get back to the table. So let's say you have that, right? Let's say uh, you give all the unions 1%. We're talking revenue that amounts to billions of dollars, right? 3% of Netflix's revenue alone amounts to almost $1 billion. It's like $925 million, something like that. Billion here, a billion there. Soon, we're talking real money. All of this suggests we're in for a much longer shutdown than anyone really thought possible six months or so ago. Could things drag on? up to and beyond the Oscars next year? I mean, that's what we're talking about at this point. We're, we're I, like, rest of the summer is done. Nobody's promoting anything. The fall festival season is very much in question. Nobody's sure if stars are going to show up there. 
the two sides are reportedly not even negotiating at the moment. Um, the Writers Guild isn't talking to the, the producers. I, it's wild. It's wild. Peter, are you as surprised as I am by how far apart the actors and the studios are here? I'm a little bit surprised, but in a lot of ways, I, I think this is a, just a sign of the times. And, and what's going on here is that there are two big forces. One is a massive technological upheaval in the business here, right? And that's streaming um, in specific, but also like the, the coming of AI and a whole bunch of uh, sort of digital technologies that are making it possible to make films in a less human, less analog way. And that's really just – that's just hugely changing the business and the economics of the business. And then at the same time, this is all coming following a, a kind of streaming bubble that was goosed by a bunch of different factors, including people staying home during COVID, including an arms race to compete with Netflix, including lower interest rates that no longer exist, as well as just a kind of unbounded VC optimism for growth rather than profits. And you have all of this colliding. And it's colliding right now because it's clear that Hollywood is about to change and it's about to change in a really big way. And it's also pretty clear that in the short term, the old business of Hollywood, as it used to exist before the strikes or maybe before COVID, that business maybe is not going to be gone completely, but it's certainly not going to be as big. And so th the argument here is over a bunch of specific sticking points about likeness use and revenue sharing and, you know, residuals and, and payments and all that. But in a lot of ways, this is the industry getting into a like a, a serious fight about what the business of Hollywood is going to be in the future and, and who is going to be doing what and who's going to make money from it. And I think – Right now, you know, there it's easy to be both sympathetic to all sides and also somewhat frustrated with all sides. So obviously being an actor, being a creative, being a writer is just a difficult job. A lot of those folks don't make very much money at all. Um, even the people who are making uh, very solid middle class livings are often uh, – it's very hard to figure out what kind of money they're going to be making, you know, six months from now or two years. It's hard to plan, right? It's Even if you're making six figures and doing OK, uh, it's just hard to figure out what it's going to be like. Um, especially now that, uh, you know, that AI is maybe sort of going to be uh, brought in to do a lot of this or to do some of this work. You know, so it's it's easy to be sympathetic. On the other hand, the one thing that's pretty clear, like I said, even if you read people sympathetic to, say, the WGA strike, like Zach Stentz's piece in The New York Times, which I've quoted from here before, like the pie is going to get smaller. And so there's going to be less to distribute. And at the same time, all of the creatives are asking for more. And so I, I just think that this is – this is going to take a while to work out, and it's going to take a while for the sides – this is now three sides – all of these sides to come to terms in terms of figuring out like how are we going to agree to work together in a world where we don't know what this business is anymore and we don't know how much business there is going to be next year, much less 10 years from now. Alyssa, it's, as Peter says, there, there are kind of two distinct questions here. And this is what I was trying to get at in my intro is that, look, you've got a money question and money questions are annoying and complicated, but are relatively easy to negotiate through. I think rel relatively speaking, you've got you got a certain amount of money. You want to divide it up a certain number of ways, whatever. Like that's that's fine. There are broader conceptual questions here about what it means to be in movies and and on TV that I think are being hammered out in a way that is of questionable it's it's not maybe the most productive way to do it but it's also the only way to do it because if the if the actors don't say you can do this and you can't do this the studios are just going to do everything 
And it gets to a question of what it actually means to be on screen, right? So this is a thing that the unions have had to argue about before. Unions had to go on strike to get residuals for, uh, you know, appearances on TV, right? The, it, when a film is in theaters, that's one revenue stream. When it goes to TV, they had to strike so they would get their their residuals. And you see this over and over again as the the history of the industry has changed. But now we're, we're talking about a, a future in which somebody somewhere sits at a computer and puts together a digital version of an actor from pre-existing footage or possibly newly scanned footage and uses it in perpetuity forever. Like, I, I don't know how you I don't know how you negotiate that without just saying you can't do this. Yeah. You cannot do this because if you do this, it makes us obsolete and we don't want that. Yeah. And look, I think that studios would be very foolish if they make a long-term bet on scanning actors and replacing them just because the idiosyncrasy of actors' choices and directors' choices is so important to what makes art feel human, right? I mean, I was actually sort of thinking about this earlier in the day. I've been listening to Fleetwood Mac's rumors, and, you know, there are just certain choices that Stevie Nicks makes when she's singing that you know, change up sort of the pacing of, you know, a line so a different number of syllables fit into it. And I don't know how an AI would make those choices, right? So I think that, you know, I think the the sort of worship of the algorithm has been foolish, both in the idea that you can program by algorithm. I mean, if even Netflix is saying it's hard to determine what their shows are actually worth, you know, then maybe the sort of algorithmic driven approach, this sort of data-driven approach doesn't make that much sense. But, you know, even as if I think the studios are foolish to think that that option is going to work, of course, actors have to fight against it. And you see a sort of shorter term version of that in one of the contract disputes that we didn't talk about. Variety mentioned that the actors want it to be clear that motion capture performance and motion capture work is, um, is covered work under the contract. And so, you know, you you have the version of that that's being fought out right now and where people have sort of been lucky to do the work on contract terms because, you know, the people who are producing movies involving motion capture work decided not to be jerks about it. But you have to fight to make sure that these things are clear. You have to fight if you're a union to make sure that your people sort of have their jobs on some fundamental level. But I also do want to push back a little bit on the idea that the money is easy. Because I think in a world where, you know, the free money comes to an end, it's not as much. And you see the number of areas where money is at stake. It's not just sort of the increases to the minimums, but it's things like trying to raise the pension contributions um, so that people who are doing a job that's sort of fundamentally not stable can get a little bit more stability out of that. You have the debates over the length of options, for example, because right now, you know, the producers can keep actors on hold for enormous amounts of time, even when they're not actively shooting a project, without freeing them up to find other work. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously this is existential, but I would not undercount the extent to which the money stuff is going to be hard to solve. Yeah, I mean, for, to be clear, I, look, negotiating over money is always tricky and, you know, nobody wants to give up money. But that makes sense, right? It like yeah. it makes sense on a fundamental level. We know what negotiating over money looks like. I think the way I'd put it is that it's hard, but it's straightforward. Right. Yeah. And negotiating over what the job is or sort of what a human is. Like if you build an AI model of Tom Cruise, like 
Can the AI model join the union? Hey, that's an interesting question. Can the entity join SAG? That's what I want. That's what I want. We'll get yes. to, we'll get Can to that the question. Join SAG? Very important question in a minute. But it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I work in a newsroom where there's starting to be a concentrated effort to think about how we use AI in our work. And in a weird way, journalism, I think, is a little bit more insulated from this, not because, you know, you can't train a large language model to replicate people's style, but because in journalism, it matters what's real or what's true. And so, you know, if Hollywood is like, okay, chat GPT, go write me a movie where Tom Cruise tries to kill himself in the most creative ways possible. It doesn't matter whether Tom Cruise actually has killed himself in these creative ways, but in journalism- That's dark, if Alyssa. You... That's really dark. <laughs> um, but in journalism, if you ask and, you know, chat GPT to write a story describing ways that Tom Cruise has attempted to kill himself and it comes up with things that have not appeared in the Mission Impossible films and you publish it, that's a problem. So, you know, I think journalism is insulated from this debate maybe by a matter of years in a way that um, acting and writing are not. But yeah, of course it's existential, right? Like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to do the work? What, you know, distinct spark of divinely human creativity do people bring to any facet of this process? And, you know, it's hard to negotiate over the ineffable. So my understanding with the background actor situation, my sense of it is, is just so we can sort of talk about some specifics here, is that Hollywood all, already very regularly uses software to generate very large crowds. This goes back to at least the Lord of the Rings films where Weta built a program called Massive that they used to do a lot of the big battle scenes. And, um, you know, and then they might shoot some sort of close-ups with, I don't know, a couple of dozen guys, but, you know, uh, actor types. But then the, when you're seeing hundreds or thousands of people on screen, it's generated characters. And then there are other instances where they do sort of doubling of those big characters. But for the background actors here, I think what they're talking about is actually like people at a restaurant table or, you know, a waiter sort of walking in the background kind of thing, like where you would see them quite clearly, but on the other hand, they wouldn't be doing, you know, sort of key star type, like delivering dialogue type work. And I think the my sense is that have just having seen some effects tests from some of the stuff that they did during COVID where they were trying to reduce the number of people on set and where they had restaurant scenes, for example, where the stars weren't actually appearing in them or where the stars were on set, but then the background actors were all shot against green screen, if that makes sense, right? So that you would have, again, just so you're having fewer people in the same room. My sense is that what they're talking about there is that you could scan a person and have get a little bit of a performance from them, and then you could just put them on a bar stool, put them at a table behind, you know, whoever it is, the principal that's talking in the scene. And, like, that's an interesting question of, like, on the one hand, that gives filmmakers some more creativity because they can move those people around afterwards. On the other hand, I, I don't think you should be able to use an actor's likeness without their permission. But it also just seems like that sort of thing you should be able to resolve, period, on a case-by-case -case basis, which is just if they want to do that, if they want to use your, your likeness for this movie or for this movie and 10 more, then they should have to say, we want to use it for 10 more and we're going to pay you a 10 more rate and you agree to it or you don't. And it just sort of seems like that, sh that sort of thing should be a, an individual contract rather than a, a, a unionized, you know, like a, a group, you know, we standardize it. On the other hand, I know this is how Hollywood negotiates. These things are done at the union level. And that's, you know, I think in some ways probably making it a little bit more complicated. 
I would also say one thing I think is important is sort of data security and how people consent to be used, right? I mean, we're already seeing just the floods of sexually explicit AI-generated content. And if I were an actress, I would be real leery about having that done without strong protections for, you know, the sort of use of that scan. I mean, I would be, you know, just personally really skeeved out by the potential for that, which is not to say that, like, you know, people aren't going to generate. I mean, look, it's the Internet. If people can visualize, you know, find a way to visualize someone doing something sexual under a certain scenario, they will do it. But I would certainly not want to be in a position where, you know, I was scanned and then got used in like a really sexually explicit sequence without my consent, right? Like photoshopped into an orgy sequence in a movie or whatever, you know? And I think there are sort of real deep, like who owns your image and what can they do with it questions that are questions that I think all of us, even those of us who are not sort of consenting to full body scans that live in somebody's, you know, in a entertainment company's server's forever should be thinking about in terms of what we put on the internet and what could be done with it. So just a, a, one more example and before we're, we're done here is that um, I, I do recall that when Will Smith played both in like a contemporary age and a younger version of himself in Ang Lee's Gemini Man, they made a full body scan of him so that he could play the younger version of himself. And he talked about Part of the deal was that he maintained totally full rights to the scan, like the, to the, the young Will, essentially a digital costume, right, that you could in fact put on an actor who was not Will Smith. And I suspect, though I don't know this for certain, I would not be surprised if at least some of the scenes in the movie were shot that way so that he could act opposite an actor. Right. And then go back and do some of the voice work himself. But that he talked about like that thing exists and it's great because now he can just play a young version of young Will Smith whenever he wants. On the other hand, like that thing has to be locked up very securely and the rights have to be like absolutely clear about who can use that in, right. and when and in what circumstances. Right. But this, you know, let's we're going to have to move on here. But hey, this does get down back to a very fundamental point of Hollywood, which is that it is uh, a system with massive inequalities in terms of star power versus, you know, the big stars versus the the little guys. You know, the, uh, somebody like The Rock, for instance, in, in his most recent newsletter, Matt Bellany noted that uh, The Rock is working on a movie for Amazon that he's getting paid $50 million for. There's huge cost overruns. It's apparently a giant mess. But the, you know, he's going to get that $50 million and the guy who's making scale and working on the movie for, you know, six weeks or whatever is getting 25 grand. And like he, the, the guy making 25 grand doesn't have the, the, you know, negotiating power to say, I would like to own my skin suit costume forever. Please don't, don't put that on the dark web. I would rather not have that happen, you know, and that's why you have to do the, the collective bargaining thing. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that Hollywood is good and shut down for the foreseeable future? Uh, Alyssa? I mean, it's obviously controversial. Peter? It's a mess is what it is. So I guess that's a controversy. Controversy. I honestly am shocked by this. I, I thought that things would uh, come together a little bit more cleanly than they have here. I thought it would, things would resemble the director's deal a little more than they, they have. But uh, no, big mess. Not getting solved any anytime soon here. All right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. We're going to be talking to Tom Cruise and his career and Mission Impossible movies, all that stuff. Speaking of which, on to our main event. 
Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the latest installment of Tom Cruise's decade-spanning franchise. Uh, I'm fascinated by the series in part because of how intentionally generic it has gotten over the last, like, 10 to 12 years or so, right? You see the start of this in Rogue Nation, where it's a movie in which the syndicate, which is made up of rogue agents, needs to get a lockbox, literally just a lockbox, in order to overthrow the system, right? And these are not generic terms I'm using to make a point. This is verbatim dialogue from the film. Dead Reckoning, part one, similarly generic. Ethan Hunt and his team are trying to track down the entity. It's an evil AI that is also sought by the world's intelligence agencies, all of whom believe that they can control the world's flow of information, if they have the unstoppable super program, apparently. As an aside, it's kind of funny to watch the MI films uh, as I have recently. I've watched them all. But you watch them progress along with the state of the internet, right? In the very first one, Ethan has to surf Usenet in order to track down the purchaser of the knock list. Um, From Usenet to the entity in a quarter century, we've come a long way, baby. The generic nature of the plot is fine, though, because the whole enterprise exists solely to show off one very specific thing, the extreme ways in which Tom Cruise is willing to nearly die for our entertainment. As I wrote in my review, the Mission Impossible movies, certainly the last four or so, feel a little bit like what would happen if the Fast and Furious movies were any good. Uh, Imagine a movie with a genuine star and, like, coherently shot set pieces that look like they take place in something resembling the real world, rather than a CGI composited bag of garbage. That's the, the the Mission Impossible series. The characters in the plot exist entirely in service of getting us to a Lawrence of Arabia-style shootout in the desert and a car chase through the streets of Rome and a bifurcated street brawl over the canals of Venice onto a mountain on which... Tom Cruise does a motorcycle jump into a base jump before crashing into the side of a train. It helps that these characters are played by absolutely wonderful actors and actresses. Rebecca Ferguson is great as Ilsa Faust. Haley Atwell, wonderful as the pickpocket Grace. Pom Clementiev steals the show as the joyously psychotic killer, Paris. Um, seriously, the, my favorite thing in this movie, I just want to briefly just highlight this. At, at one point, she's, carry, she's driving this APC through the streets of Rome, this massive vehicle through the streets of Rome. She's just pancaking cars, and she's smashing through stands of mopeds. And director Christopher McQuarrie keeps cutting back to her face like 10 or 12 times. And in any other movie, I would be deeply annoyed by this. I'd be like, just focus on focus on the chase. We don't need more reaction shots. But I could have used 100 more cuts to her. If this movie had to be four hours long to fit them all in there, I would have allowed it because it's it's she just looks so amusingly demented. It's it's wonderful. Um, I hope the the Blu-ray actually has like a picture in picture version of that scene where we just watch her face the whole time. It would be wonderful. I don't know, guys. Uh, My two cents on this whole series is that the movies are simultaneously very well done and completely disposable. There's nothing really to wrestle with here. They hold up fine on rewatch. If I never saw any individual entry again, it wouldn't be the end of the world. It's perfect popcorn fare, in other words. It's the sort of movie that definitely benefits from being seen on a giant screen with an oppressive sound system battering the very air from your lungs. Uh, Do do as Tom says. Go see it in in the theaters on the big screens. I liked it. Thumbs up. Alyssa, what did you make of Dead Reckoning Part 1? I'm really annoyed they killed Ilsa Faust. I mean, maybe that's a dumb initial reaction to have to this movie, but I thought Rebecca Ferguson and Tom Cruise were so excellent together in this franchise. And she gives, in the last couple of movies, in many ways, the most interesting performance as someone who you know, feels a lot of melancholy, who has a a sort of interestingly masculine energy and sort of in her fight style and the way that they costume her, who really just felt like Cruz's equal on screen. And 
I did not love Grace as a character and in particular was just not compelled by the idea of her as like functionally an Ilsa replacement. And that just kind of lingered for me as a sour note throughout the movie. I would also note that I do not care about Ethan Hunt's psychology or backstory at all and was really irritated that this movie spent any time at all being retconning all of the Impossible Mission Force folks into something where like they were super criminals who got like offered the choice and you know that Ethan is being brought into some like personal vendetta from stuff that we've never heard about just like gag me what a waste of time but the motorcycle stunt is very cool the crashing the Orient Express uh off a bridge is just enormously fun like the sequence where Cruz and Atwell are having to like work their way up through the car dodging you know hot grease from fryers and grand pianos is just a treat and the thing with the entity is fine um I actually think you could have done something semi-ideologically interesting about like why a human being would sort of decide to be in service to an AI you know, theoretically, we, we may get some of this in the adaptation of the three-body problem, in which, which is in part about a human being who just decides to betray other human beings in favor of an, an annihilating alien force. But as is, like, the idea that, you know, this Gabriel guy, who's apparently super significant, is like, you know, the harbinger of the entity just comes across as incredibly dumb. So I don't I I enjoyed it while I was watching it, but it does not stand up to any amount of thinking about it at all. That said, Pam Klementiev is completely delightful. And having her play a character who just like enjoys being violent and destructive and evil is a hoot. And that's the supervillain energy that everyone should be bringing into 2024 and beyond. The one thing I did like about how they, they used Ilsa Faust in this movie is the the best. There's a sequence in the middle where Tom Cruise, uh, Ethan Hunt is stuck in an alley, like in a claustrophobic yeah. alley. And he's got to fight his way out of it. He's got enemies on both sides. And they're basically just detaining him long enough. So this Esai, this character played by Isai Morales, Gabriel, can kill either Grace or Ilsa. And, you know, uh, that whole sequence had more tension and more energy with this driving, amazing score than anything from John Wick 4, right? Like, it, it feels like very, it feels very much like a John Wick fight where you have, you have this tight geographical location and they're using space in very interesting and different ways. Um, but there were actual emotional stakes here because I, I agree with you. Elsa Faust is great in this movie. Rebecca Ferguson is great as her. Um, it, it gives uh, Ethan and, and her and I, is, there are a few nice little character beats, character moments uh, earlier in this film and throughout the series. And I was, uh, it was very tense to see how that, how that would resolve itself. Peter, what did you make of uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? So after reading re your review, Sonny, I, I actually have a pitch for another Mission Impossible movie. Yeah. So hear me out. So it's in this one, the protagonist must fight the enemy who has an intricate plan to use a rare high-tech thing to be evil and dominate the world. And the protagonist must run and run and keep running with a determined running face and that's that's basically the movie. Well, this also works as a tenant <laughs> sequel. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I, I, it should be a crossover. No, I, I think I liked it more than either of you guys. Uh, it's 
just a, a kind of a delight. And uh, Sonny, I actually thought about your Fast and Furious comparison. I thought it was just right because I had the same thought, um, especially in the Rome sequence here, that great chase bit that you talked about. There's actually a similar sequence in the most recent Fast and the Furious movie, except the one in the Fast and the Furious movie is awful. And it's maybe the best sequence in the movie, and it's still just awful, like almost unwatchably garbagey in the way it looks. And here you actually see what it's like to have all of these cars moving through tiny little, you know, European streets paved with whatever, uh, like at, at high speed. And it just actually looks like they went there and shot real cars and had stuff moving around because, you know, they did. And, and you just see that sort of that determination to have some sort of some sense of physical reality and and something like you know uh, real things caught by camera lenses uh, the whole time there is a there's also just like a a great sense of like a, a madcap elaborateness is the only phrase I, I could think of to, to describe it, right? There are so many complications to every single action scene in this movie, right? It's like a giant Swiss watch. And just with a, as with a Swiss watch, most of it is kind of unnecessary, right? You, you could always just buy a cheap Timex and that would keep time for you. But there's something wonderful and beautiful about a Swiss watch in its excessiveness, in its elaborateness, in the, the fact that all of this is unnecessary, and yet it is intricate and wonderful. And that's what I liked about this, is it's, is it's totally unnecessary intricateness and its devotion to a kind of physical machine reality. All right, and then, like, they, sure, the plot is completely generic, completely worthless right it's at, it's basically on the level of you know what i said at the beginning of like the protagonist must fight the enemy to over the macguffin but that's it but that's been the case in the mission impossible films pretty much all the way through none of the the macguffins have been terribly clear or specific i mean frankly in the third movie you know which is where the the series started to to reboot the MacGuffin is like some sort of like, well, we don't even really know what it is, but you could take over the world. Like it only works because Philip Seymour Hoffman is just a perfectly convincing bad person who has like it, it's it's an amazing performance because somehow or another it makes no motivation a virtue. And I don't think I've ever seen that done at certainly at that level before. And this movie just like keeps that sensibility. And the entity is just a it's there because. Ethan Hunt needs somebody and something to fight and to show off. And like, I just didn't, I didn't care about the plot, but I didn't care that I didn't care about the plot at all. I was there, I was there for the sequences and I was there for the, the way that this movie is just designed to show off the biggest and best and most spectacular things that Hollywood can do. And every one of the sequences works. I think the only, the, I think the movie is a little bit too long, probably about 10 or 15 minutes. The place where it bogs down is in the setup on the train before you get to the big motorcycle jump, sort of basically all the stuff as Ethan Hunt is driving around waiting to discover what we all kind of know is coming, which is that he's actually going to have to jump off of a mountain to get to the train and that that bit between the the sort of shadowy night fight on the streets and when hunt actually gets to the train that bit is a little bit slow and takes a little bit too much time and probably should have been trimmed down but otherwise i just it's fast moving it's incredibly physical it's super determined to entertain you and just to go for broke at every moment it is also incredibly clear and incredibly clear with really quite complex logistical stuff to, to capture. So I, I don't know. I, I just 
I really enjoyed it. It's not just a pretty good summer movie or pretty good popcorn entertainment. This is superior stuff. And it, it is done with an intent to, to actually wow people and to actually deliver on the premise and promise of a big $300 million movie. And I, you just don't see that very often, it, especially after you know watching The Flash and Indiana Jones over the past month. Watching this was really refreshing. Like even the worst – I think the worst action scene in this movie is the fight – that happens on top of the train, which of course is at least a, a part of a partly a reference to a similar train bit in the first film. It just doesn't look all that great. It's pretty clear that there's a bunch of CG work going on. But you compare that to the train top fight at the beginning of the new Indiana Jones, and you know what? It first of all looks better. It looks like someone tried to make it look good rather than like someone tried to make it look like a basically an animated sequence with somebody wearing a digital Harrison Ford mask. And it's also just staged and shot and organized with a, a kind of crackerjack logic that all of these other movies that are, you know, like that wanna that wanna lay claim to we're actually worth the two or three hundred million dollars we spent on them. Like you don't see any ideas on screen. You don't see any actual craft. You you just see a lot of like ho hum uh sort of well, we're here because, you know. The sequel demanded it. This is a film that is a sequel and is just and is delivering on the promise of the of the franchise, but it is also attempting to do so in a way that actually respects the audience and says, we know that like you deserve to be entertained and entertained well, and we are damn sure we are gonna do it. Yeah, and I don't disagree with any of that. I just the Ilsa thing just sticks in my craw a little bit. And it's I do mean Do you think she's actually dead? Because this is this is the thing is you know the script they've been rewriting the script I, I don't know what stage that's in with the with the WGA strike but the movie is the sequel's about to go about to go into production and it does seem like the kind of thing where they could bring her back somehow or another maybe she seems pretty dead also yeah. but this doesn't seem like the kind of franchise that is really gonna that necessarily I should say requires her to stay dead. I think for the logic of the plot and the series, she pretty much has to be dead. But yeah, uh, I also think like this is a franchise that has a just lot like what they do is they kill off the brunette eventually, either in like the first movie. She's I mean, the first, you know, John Voight's wife, uh, Claire gets killed off in the first one. Sandy Newton's character dies in the second one. Vanessa dies. Kirby has made it for a while. I guess she's not the Burnett. Yeah, but so. she's an antagonist. Um, Wait, does Sandy like, Newton die in the second one? I believe so. I don't. I, Doesn't she like get infected with the virus and wander like, off to? I feel like I watched it, that recently and I don't remember her dying. But, but I don't know. yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's a franchise that like the women get to stick around for a while. And look, I mean, a having. You know, Ethan Hunt have a sort of, you know, even non-romantic sort of partnership with a woman who's his opposite number would be sort of a genuinely novel action movie thing to do. But I just, I mean, Rebecca Ferguson is also like, she's a star. She's amazingly compelling. She's good in the physical stuff. You know, the Dune is obviously sort of helping with her profile as a silo. And, you know, I... The movie gets rid of the blonde. It's like it lets the Simon Peggs and the Ving Rameses hang around, but I think she's dead, and I think it's annoying. 
For the record, Thandie Newton definitely still alive at the end. Of, I, oh. I efforted that. I wanted to make sure because uh, but, she's. But they disappear, right? Like they don't yeah. they don't stick around. And that's that's kind of a bummer. Well, it, it's funny, too, because there's a very serious case to be made that the last three Mission Impossible movies were all an effort to fix a mistake that they made in the third one, which was giving Ethan Hunt a wife. And giving yeah. him like a like this. This is the thing is that the the character only really works if he doesn't actually have any attachments. I think. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's right. But that's why Ilsa sort of works as the female opposite number, who is sort of essentially like she's not a soft feminine presence who like needs to be protected in a conventional way. She is his opposite number. She is sort of his doppelganger and. You know, she is independent. She's not going to stick around. She's not someone he has to take care of in the same way he did with Julia. I actually thought that was what made it work. And eh, I don't know. It's just a bit of a bummer for those of us who love women in action movies who are awesome. But hopefully June 2 will be amazing. Lady Jessica rocks. Rebecca Ferguson forever. I mean, if this allows her to do Silo season two, three, four, five, et cetera, I'm very happy with, with her doing that. Are you guys watching Silo? I'm not. It's I, great. I hear it's good. Okay, I gotta, I gotta. Good. It's on my list. Gotta add that to my watch list. All right. Uh, so, what do we think? Thumbs up on Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. Peter, thumbs up. Alyssa, thumbs up. It's perfectly enjoyable. My quibble aside. Uh, thumbs up. Good movie. I I approve of that movie. All right. Um, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. We don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.